This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blah! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Hi, this is Tiffany Bova, author of Growth IQ. Get smarter about the choices that will make or break your business. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Ahrefs. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Ahrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google, search results, and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. Now, a subscription to Ahrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars per month, but Ahrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. For details, go to hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. I'll have more details in a bit. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Tiffany Bova to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business, published by Portfolio Penguin. Tiffany Bova is the global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce. Over the past two decades, she has led large revenue-producing divisions at businesses ranging from startups to the Fortune 500. She spent 10 years at Gartner, the world's leading IT research and advisory firm, as a distinguished analyst and research fellow, where she helped companies such as Microsoft, Cisco, Hewlett-Packard, IBM, Oracle, SAP, AT&T, Dell, and other prominent companies expand their market share and grow their revenues. She also hosts the podcast, What's Next with Tiffany Bova, where she talks with really smart people, including some authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, about what's next for companies and individuals as they look to innovate and grow. And, interesting fact, she grew up in Hawaii 
and she and President Obama are alumni of the same high school. Tiffany, congratulations on Growth IQ, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So you were at uh, Panaho, is that how you pronounce it? It's Punaho. Punaho. Okay. When when Barack Obama was there, but he was uh, some you know, years ahead of you. Do you recall him as a uh, there or as an old, one of the older students? Uh, I do. He went as Barry uh, in high school. Uh, he played basketball. I played volleyball. So you know we would see each other. You know in the uh, in the gym, but. I would be uh, you know, over-exaggerating if I said we were friends in high school. But yes, sure. but you know, recall we knew him. of each other. Yes, we knew of each other and we said hi, that kind of thing probably. Oh. But but uh, we, didn't, we didn't hang out. Cool. I don't call him Barry because I'm not on that kind of uh, you know, relationship <laughs> with him. But um, he's still – I think uh, he would probably be most comfortable with me calling him president and, and just keep it at that. So you know what? Uh, interesting uh, factoid. I interviewed another author who's a graduate of that high school, Eddie Yoon. Yes. Author so- of Super Consumers. Yes, and I, uh, you know, go get growth. I love Eddie. Yes, he's he's he. So Brock is older than I am. Uh, I'm in the middle, and Eddie is much younger. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> and so Eddie went to that high school. He lives in Chicago, which is where President Obama lived. And I'm just thinking, you know, Eddie, clearly you're on your way to the White House. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so can't wait. That's right. That's right. So this is your first book, and. I don't envy you because I don't know what you're going to do for an encore. <laughs> I, I don't, this was, this was a terrific book. This is like a, a sort of a tour de force. And I just, my, I worry a little bit for you because it's like, uh, you know, like Fitzgerald and Hemingway, their, their greatest work was some of their very first work. And then they were forever trying to, to catch up. So I, if, I hope you're not feeling pressure to do a second one, but if you do a second book, I actually have a, a book idea for you that I can, I can share with you later. All right. I'm, I'm here to well, offer you know, free I, uh, career advice uh, too. Yeah, There's no I, charge. Yeah, I get asked that a lot, right? But I feel like right now she's an only child and she's okay with it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, now here's the other thought, though. In all uh, seriousness, I would think that this book is going to be a, it's going to have a long shelf life, and you could update it every three, five years, and you could put in. I mean, the uh, the growth paths. I don't think they're going to change that much, but you could update it with uh, new uh, case studies. Yeah, you know, and I first let me say I really appreciate the uh, the compliment on the book. I, w- I worked really hard on it, and I think you know the underlying uh, success. I think as I wrote a book, I would want to read, and I know that sounds fairly selfish, but it was more about how do I keep my own attention when I read a book, and and how do I learn visually, you know, versus it just being read learning. And so I tried to really make it a book that could come alive as much as you can on a piece of paper, you know, in, in that way. So that seems to be what has really resonated with people is just sort of the format of it and the feel of it. And, and that kind of helped keep people engaged. So I I appreciate it. Well, you didn't want to read, you didn't want to write someone else's book and you, this seemed, I I wasn't aware of another book like this. So in, in, in the book, just to jump ahead, you talk about these 10 growth paths that you've seen over and over and over that companies take to grow. And uh, they're, they're explained. The reason I am so excited to be able to interview you is because of a burr in my saddle on behalf of all the marketers and salespeople that are listeners. And that is, I had this vision of uh, a CEO or somebody in charge at a company who's banging their 
hand on the conference room table, and trust me, I've worked at these companies, and they're just saying, get out there, we, we need more, get out there, grow. And there's not much more thought beyond that, like, you know, just go make it, go make it rain. And I think if uh, more marketers and salespeople would be able to, would read this book, they'd then be able to guide their companies on a more meaningful and successful path rather than someone saying, well, double the number of cold calls you're making. I mean, I know it sounds a bit dated back to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but this, <laughs> this seems like something that can really raise the stature of, of marketers working at companies that clearly want to grow, but maybe they don't know how. Yeah, I, I'd say this. I mean, I think the gen, there was two sort of genesis of the book and kind of why I leaned in the way I did. One was, you know, over the course of my practicing career, running sales, marketing, and customer service, you know, it tended to be we pulled these same three levers, hire more salespeople, spend more marketing money, cut costs like right. when there was a growth problem. That's mm-hmm. a, to your point, sort of banging your fist on the table and saying, hire more salespeople, spend more marketing money, cut costs, right? That right. sort of mantra. And I mean, I lived and breathed it. And because you're in the weeds of it every day, you don't have a moment usually to back away and say, wait a second, is there a better way? Because you're just living in the grind of, I have to hire more salespeople, spend more marketing money and cut costs, Right. And then when I began advising companies in my role at Gartner, what was interesting was regardless of what company I spoke to around the globe, it could be a small startup in in Berlin, it could be a company in London, it could be a company in Singapore or New York or San Francisco uh, or or in Latin America, it didn't matter. I I almost heard those same three levers. <laughs> right. It's like it, right? uh, you know, you hear the expression, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It's like those three levers, they were starting to rhyme everywhere you went. Yeah. And, and so I said, okay, I, in my role, I have an opportunity to step back and say, wait a second, there, there has to kind of be a better way. And that's when I began in my advice, you know, as a, as a research analyst and then, you know, moving towards becoming a research fellow was what are the things I can help in short bursts, get people out of that same thinking, right? Because then it just, all you're doing is you're chasing the competition on they're spending more marketing money. We need to spend more marketing money, or we read or heard in their earnings report that they hired, you know, X amount more salespeople or Or they lowered their price or they lowered their price. Right. And so we're going to go replicate that. (laughs) And so I said, you know, let me, let me start to think about how these high performing companies are able to be more consistent around growth. And, you know, I would say that it didn't come to me, you know, in the form of growth IQ at that point, I I think I just began thinking about it. And when I got serious about the book, uh, after I'd left Gartner, I I said, okay, let me go and really start to deconstruct those high performers. Like, let me make that an, an, an exercise. And I started to see that there were tried and true growth strategies that have been around for a very, very long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really, I sort of call this out at the beginning of the book that, look, I make no uh, claims that I have thought of 10 brand new growth paths. Actually, that's not what I did. What I did was I found the most prevalent growth strategies for companies around the world, and I modernized them based on what we now have at our disposal i.e. mobile, cloud, social, big data, AI, machine learning, virtual reality, et cetera, right? And how do I take some of those that have been uh, the ways that companies have grown, something like the Ansoff matrix, which Mm -hmm. has been around since the 50s, and and how do I modernize it? So 
that's why I think people resonate with it because they don't feel like it's something they, one, haven't already done or are doing, or two, it's easy to understand. And so then the application of it was really where the aha was versus the paths themselves. Right. It was not everything you're doing is wrong. Throw it all out and start over. Yes. Not, not at all. Not at yes. all. So I'd just like to read one excerpt from the very beginning. Over the thousands of interactions I've had with some of the world's biggest companies, I've found that one of the most persistent and vexing challenges faced by executives is determining how best to grow their business. Unless you're a small family business determined to stay small or you're unable to take on more financial risk and workload along with their associated hiring demands, the quest for growth is never ending. While there's always a balance of high sales and low sales periods, an extended stall or slowdown in growth is often a cause for great concern among investors and employees. Now, the forward to your book, uh, written by Jeffrey Moore, author of Crossing the Chasm, he talks about how the, the truth is that finding sustainable, repeatable growth is just getting harder. What, what are some of the factors contributing to that? Well, I think it goes back to what we were just just saying, right, that it's getting harder because hiring more salespeople, spending more marketing dollars and cutting costs no longer are as effective as they were when other companies couldn't keep up with those three things. Mm hmm. Right? But they can now, now. But they can now. And there's a number of reasons why. I'm just going to, you know, I think the democratization of technology and now that we've come to a place where the technology that is used by enterprise size organizations can now be used with small business, even small home office business anywhere in the world gives this level playing field of, look, I don't need to hire 10 more salespeople. If I could just get the five I have to be more productive and efficient using technology in some way. Is it automation? Is it AI? Is it machine learning? Is it CRM? Is it big data? Whatever it might be. And even all of the digital marketing. I mean, when I was, uh, I was a Loqua's beta client in 2001, literally. <laughs> really? And literally. And, you know, so I have watched marketing technology grow up and I was constant contacts, one of their beta clients. So we were really pushing. <laughs> so you're very comfortable with risk. <laughs> well, it, because I was working for the largest web hosting company in the U.S. at the time, and we were selling quote-unquote cloud services before it was called all the things it's called. Before it was cool. Today. You know, and we were $125 million in recurring revenue back in 2002, three, four, and five. So we were very – we were four times the size of Rackspace, you know. And and so ultimately, we didn't really know what we were doing, so I don't know if we even thought it was risky. Oh, okay. <laughs> we were just trying to, you know, find our way. But why I say that is because – Back then, you know, there was a handful of digital marketing tools. You know, now there's 75, 7,600, somewhere around there, digital marketing tools. And so there's no shortage of technology to help businesses be more effective. The challenge now is how do you use them? What do you use? And for me, I just don't believe there's a technology problem. I believe there's a people process problem. And that's where I think small businesses have the ability to be much more agile and nimble and win against the big guys because they're not caught in this process. We've always done it this way trap, right? You kind of have to get across that chasm of we've done it this way. We're going to try to do it that way. And, you know, that really has changed the dynamic between the selling company and the buyer, whether it's a business or a consumer, that it's flipped from the, you know, organization pushing to the buyer. And now the buyer is pulling from the seller. It's very different. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I know the listener is dying to know, well, what are the, what are the 10? And uh, what I was going to do is just walk through them really, really fast, and then we'll have time for uh, just a few of them. Okay. So uh, the first is customer experience, which is inspire additional purchases and advocacy, which a lot of the, we've had a lot of books on the show about that. Uh, the next one's customer-based penetration, which is selling more of existing products to your existing customers. And the third is market acceleration, which is expanding into new markets with uh, your current products. And then product expansion, which is selling new products to existing markets, customer and product diversification, which is selling new products to new customers. And then optimizing sales, which eh, may have been my favorite chapter, streamline sales efforts to increase productivity. And then churn, which is minimizing the defection, Keep more of your customers. Partnerships, which is uh, third-party alliances, channels, uh, and other kind of ecosystems. And then co-opetition, which is, I guess, a rather a, a newer word, which is you're cooperating with your, your actual competitors. Uh, and then the last one is unconventional strategies. And I just wanted to say that a common thread throughout most of those 10 sections in the book are about how companies with the deepest understanding of their customers are the most successful. And boy, did that warm the cockles of my heart. (laughs) And yet, understanding their customers is such a challenge for companies. What are some of the things companies can be doing to gain a better understanding of their customers? Well, I'd start with just, I'm going to get really, you know, (laughs) right to the brass tacks of it, but it's sort of, listen, I I know, just... (laughs) Start by listening, but it's not, it's not, you can't listen individually. You have to be able to listen collectively. And what I mean by that is it's fascinating to me how much, how, how many companies believe that they know their customers. And then when I start saying to them, you know, especially if you look in the customer base penetration chapter, which is about selling more to the base is okay. How many customers do you have? And if I ask the executive team that question, you know, someone might say, oh, we got like, you know, five or 6,000. Someone else might go, no, we don't. We have like 50. Someone else might say, well, no, we don't. We have 300. And somebody, you know, it's like, okay, how many customers do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's just start there. Yeah. And then, okay, of those customers, how many bought from you in the last quarter? And then of that, what was the average sale price? If you have more than one product, how many of your customers buy multiple products from you? Mm-hmm. What vertical or industry are you most, if you're selling B2B, are you most prevalent in? If you're selling to C as a consumer, what are the sort of the demographic, firmographic of those consumers you spend? And I can start double clicking. And while the top says, you know, I don't mean the top meaning the executive team. I mean, the beginning of the waterfall conversation, is, of course, we know our customers. By the time we get to the bottom, it's the C of, we don't know our customers. And so part of it is, understanding what that question even means. Like, who is your customer? But more importantly, why is that even an important question to know the answer to? Mm-hmm. And so, the, well, but, talk about the importance of, is your customer your buyer? You talk about that in the book. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's, if you're especially in, your, in the B community, you are never selling. I mean, according to CEB, which is now part of Gartner, you know, there's an average of, I forget the number, but it's like 7.4 or 5.6. <laughs> it goes up every day. I don't remember <laughs> okay. the number, but anyway, it's more than one. Right. It's like 5.7 right. and it was 5.4 and yeah. Yeah. 
that's how many individual quote unquote buyers are in the buying journey, if you will. So it could be the CFO and someone from procurement and the head of marketing or sale. You know what I'm saying? So multiple quote unquote buyers. So that complicates it. In the C world, it could be, you know, you're marketing to a household. So I'm just going to pick pizza as an example. Like it within a household, there may be four customers, mom, dad, two kids. And so dad likes the, you know, meat lovers, mom likes the cheese pizza, the kids like pepperoni and cheese, and the other kid likes, you know, vegetarian. So in one house, a house is not the customer, even though in the pizza shop, you'd be like, that address is the customer. No, there's actually four buyers in that house. And so how do you market to someone who likes vegetarian, right? Meat lovers, uh, cheese pizza or pepperoni. And so it gets very complicated. So I just like to say first, before you take the house and try to understand the four buyers in it, at least begin to understand the house that maybe you start to see patterns that, okay, the meat lovers seems to be always ordered during a sports day. So when, you know, so, and you don't, maybe don't know it's dad or mom or the kids, it doesn't matter, but you know that it it's associated with, you know, whether it's a football game uh, in the, in Europe, i.e. soccer in the States or U S American football that, you know, that it's a Saturday or a Sunday. And so now you can start messaging to say, Hey, that meat lovers pizza is probably going to be more, you know, well-received, uh, you know, as a reminder on a Friday as to prepare for the weekend that they want this, that kind of intelligence is why knowing the customer is so important because as a marketer, you know, and as a, let me just say that a different way, as a consumer of marketers, I see worse practices every single day. Like I get advertisements for ties because I buy, it's like, okay. Or, you know, there's a men's suit sale. It's like, okay. Or I get something about a credit card that, oh, by the way, I already own Right. or, you know, that's the failure of it. And I think going to your question of why it is because we now as consumers have such greater expectations from those brands that have gotten really good at what we're talking about mm -hmm. that we notice when a brand is not good at what we're talking about. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about Ahrefs and a really sweet offer they have. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Ahrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google search results and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. A few of my favorite tools include the site audit. This crawls your entire website and gives a comprehensive report on any issues that may be hurting your SEO performance. And you're going to be surprised and maybe a little bit embarrassed at what the site audit will find. If you're a marketer responsible for your website, you'll want to run this report before your boss does. And if you're an agency responsible for your client's website, you better run this report before your clients do. Another one is Site Explorer. This is where you can research any website, but especially your competitors. One popular way to use this is to figure out your competitors' marketing strategies by studying the keywords they rank for in search results and finding out the pages that bring them the most traffic from search. You can research anything from how fast their search traffic is growing to which websites are linking to them to the pages on their website with the most backlinks. Another one is Keyword Explorer. This is great to have 
before you create even more content for your site. This tool helps you discover thousands of great keyword ideas and gauge how difficult it is to rank for them and then calculate their traffic potential. You can also confirm what your potential customers are searching for online to help make sure that you're including the right keywords and content on your site. Now, a monthly subscription to Ahrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars, but Ahrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. So, even if you don't end up subscribing, the reports that you can run are a phenomenal value. Seriously. Otherwise, if you've got money coming out the wazoo, hire an SEO firm, give them a king's ransom, but don't be upset when you find out they're using Ahrefs to run the same reports that you can run. Also, just a bit of medical advice. If you've got money coming out the wazoo, you should probably get that checked. Now, are there other all-in-one SEO tools? Sure, there are, and they're good. But in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's a link to an article about the nine most important features that Ahrefs has that no other SEO tool does. Check that out. To get the seven-day trial for just $7, visit ahrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And now, back to the show. Right, so... I think there's a human yearning for an easy button or a silver bullet or whatever you want to call it, path of least resistance. So in the book, you've got 10 really strong, sharp arrows in a company's quiver. Now, I don't have to use all of them, but I had to laugh when I saw the very first chapter, which is titled, The One Thing Is, It's Never Just One Thing. So explain why that chapter is titled that and and why do companies keep looking for just one thing to do? Yeah, and that came that came really from the you know five thousand or so inquiry calls I took from clients when I was at Gartner. Is they would literally say, "What's the one thing we can do to help recover from?" They wouldn't use these words, right? But in going along with the book, to recover from this growth stall, we're feeling in quarter, like. I'm in the quarter. I'm feeling like I've got a softness. I feel like we're not going to come out of it on the other side with growth. And I need to course correct in the quarter. What's the one thing I can do? And then that's when you hear the levers. Hire more salespeople because I could probably get a little bit of a lift, double down and spend a little bit more money and pull it away from long-term branding or employee engagement, right? You pull it away from the long-term strategy and you double down in quarter or you start cutting costs. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a publicly traded company, that is a very real concern. Mm -hmm. If you are a private company, that is a false concern because the street is not going to judge you if you have two or three quarters of you're making investments so you come out the other end even stronger, even if it's flat growth. You don't want no growth and you don't want downward progress, right? But If you say we're growing at 10%, we're growing at 8%, we're growing at 5% because we're making investments, we're privately held, we're making investments. We know when we come out the other side, we're expecting we're going to grow at 12 or 13 or 14. We'll be better off. We're going to be healthier, more profitable, all of those things. Make the investment. If you're publicly traded and you're feeling that pinch, then you have to be more aware of how do you signal to the street those things. So the challenge with it's not one thing is that people look for the short-term fix on the hamster wheel of these quarterly earnings. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, this is a you know 
cliche statement, but this is a marathon and not a sprint. And that's why I use that quote from Jeff Bezos that, you know, it's a combination of decisions that we made. And if we have a good quarter, it's not because of something we did today. It's because of something we did many years ago. And that's the key to those high performing companies is that they are really planning out 10 or 12 quarters ahead. And while at the same time, they are watching the business today and making those short term adjustments in quarter to make sure that, you know, things are are going in the right direction, but they're never sacrificing the long term for short term. Yes. But then I, I recall in the book, you mentioned the head of Unilever who just said uh, at, the, at the very last chapter, he said, I'm, I'm, we're not going to worry about that anymore. Right. And their, their stock dropped uh, 8%, but they're, they're chugging along, I, so, I suppose. Yeah, that was, you know, that last uh, chapter, Unconventional Strategies, was really about purpose over profit. And so mm-hmm. his position was, uh, what's more important to us is, are we being a better, better steward of the planet? So are the products we're developing and launching and bringing to market, are they okay for the environment? Are they good for our customers? Are we being good to our employees? And so he wanted to flip the metric from just being about revenue and profit and return on capital and all the things that obviously the stock market cares about. And he wanted to talk about, you know, how are we doing against the UN 30? Are we being better stewards of the planet? And it, he was received with a lot of pushback, but he's like, look, you can read our earnings. You can look at the numbers, have a good time. I want to talk about sort of how we are doing as a company. And while he was very bold in making that decision uh, and you slowly start to see brands leaning into including that in the conversation. So talking mm-hmm. about the numbers and talking about their sort of, you know, purpose over profit and the, you know, the purpose of business is just to be better. You see a blend of those two where he took the position of, I'm just going to talk about this. So, you know, I think that as we, I, I don't think the quarterly earnings and the expectation of growth is, a healthy way for people in the business every day to make decisions because then it's all about the about the shareholders and not that there's anything wrong with that but I think the shareholder community is broader than just the shareholders right it's employees the communities you serve the planet you know mm-hmm. all of those things I think shareholder has taken on a larger term and I'm really excited to see that happening more and more so thanks for calling that one out very interesting yes oh and just to the Jeff Bezos quote is how do you stay ahead of ever-rising customer expectations? There's no single way to do it. It's a combination of many things. Now, if someone's in a growth stall who's listening, I want to just want to share one thing that kind of shook me up or, or frightened me, I guess. And you talked about how 87% of all companies go through a growth stall at some point, and only a small percentage of them ever recover. Right. Frightening. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those quotes that like just anchors the entire conversation of the book, <laughs> right? The other one scared me. So there's, yeah, there's two. There's two. That is one, and the second one is a, a study from Bain and Company that I'm going to average it, but it was like whether you're under five billion or over five billion, you know, oh, the right. average is about ninety percent of companies, executives that were surveyed from this Bain study said that internal, internal, not external factors are what holds them back from having predictable growth. Internal. Yes. Oh, I know. I saw that too. And it just jumped off. It was actually on the same page, I believe. And it just, I, I, it was unbelievable. Right. So you take those two things and you go, okay, first of all, 
you need to start every day going like a growth stall is right around the corner for me. Yeah. And so going back to your very first question around the customer, why is it important? If you're listening to the customer, they are the canary in the coal mine of trouble is around the corner. Are they leaving you? Are they buying less? Are they less engaged? Are they, if you're in a SaaS business, as an example, are they not logging in? Are they not using whatever product or service? Have they not ordered something in the last three months? Like they're already signaling to you that something's going on. And it's not like that information is not there. So we don't have a data problem. (laughs) So so we don't have a technology problem with 7,600, you know, for the marketers on, right? 7,600 digital marketing tools a la Scott Brinker, right? Right. You have 7,600 digital marketing tools and we don't have a data problem because we're just producing as individuals so much data every single day. We're leaving breadcrumbs all over the place. So the trick now is to capture the data. Then you have to analyze it, which is really analytics. So I like to say data, you know, I didn't say this, but data is the new oil Mm -hmm. to, to borrow that phrase. But then I say underneath that analytics is the refinery and intelligence is the petrol or the gasoline that powers the business. Ah. And so data for data's sake does no one any good, just like technology for technology's sake does nobody any good, right? If no one's using it, it's not helping you. If you have all this data and you're not analyzing it and then taking the intelligence to make different decisions, that you're just looking at the data to go, yep, it's telling me what I knew, or the data's wrong, there's no way that's what's going on, and you don't listen to it anyway, don't capture it. (laughs) That's... uh uh, Tiffany, I am going to actually be stealing that. I had not heard it before. And whether you said it or not, I'm going to attribute it to you. So No, I did. You. I did say it. <laughs> okay. I did say it. Yeah. Well, I'm stealing it. So just one more quote, and it was might have been my favorite one from the book, and it was from none other than Steve Jobs. And he said, you've got to start with the customer experience and work backwards for the technology. What incredible benefits can we give to the customer? Not starting with Let's sit down with the engineers and figure out what awesome technology we have. Customer experience is the very first path in the book that you talk about. Can you explain why that is the first one? No, I think that's the holy grail today. Um, I started saying seven years ago that customer experience will be the new battleground. I was part of the team at Gartner that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more money than the CIO, Mm -hmm. which sent off a flurry of acquisitions from Salesforce and Microsoft, SAP, Oracle. Everybody started (laughs) buying to try to get to those dollars. And didn't that Uh, actually happen before the year that that was predicted? Yeah, yeah, just about 12 months before. Yes. And we were very close on the prediction. Yes. Um, which is great for all kinds of reasons. It was good. It was good that, that it worked out that way. But I would say that the heartbeat of this is companies may not understand that they're trying to shift from being product-led to being customer-led. And that's what Steve Jobs is saying. Customer-led is start from the customer, work back to whatever product, because in his case, it was, in, it was uh, technology, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter. You're developing a suitcase. The traveler is the customer and work your way back to how are you going to manufacture it, right? Or what the razor blade or the energy drink or the mattress or the whatever it is working your way back to then what is it they're looking for? And and then you have to be careful of the Henry Ford problem of, well, if we ask the customer, they'd want faster horses. So there's the challenge of, I'm not saying to always listen to the customer. I'm saying you have to at least ask and pay attention because within there is some intelligence. Now, you don't have to be Steve Jobs. And usually when I give a keynote and I make that quote, you don't have to be Steve Jobs and 
even have an inkling that 10 years or 15 years after the iPhone came out, I don't think Steve Jobs would have ever expected there would be more smartphones on the planet than toothbrushes. Hmm. So you don't have to be that on, like you don't have to be 15 years out because some people, you know, there's, there's a, there's only a Steve Jobs and maybe only, you know, Jeff Bezos and a Mark Benioff and a in tech, right? There's a handful of people that have been that forward thinking, but ultimately I need you to be 18 months ahead at least and welcome your customers when they show up. And the only way you can do that is going back to that listening, right? The data, the analytics, the intelligence, and then make decisions and pilot and test and try to find the right place. But the heart of why that chapter was first was behind every decision you make in the business should be a customer. And I put customer in quotes because in that particular statement, I also mean your employees mm -hmm. because your customers will only be as happy as your employees. So you have to empower your employees to do what's right for the customer you have to give them access to the technology to deliver these compelling experiences and be engaging and do all the things you need to do. And so that's why I made it first, because if you start there, all the other decisions should be grounded in the fact that behind every decision is a customer. Here, here. I guess we can stop now. No, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> there was one thing I wanted to, to explain from that section, and that is when you, you say that you have the most control over your destiny by having the least control over what your customers actually do with you. Yes. Counterintuitive. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So if you think about taking, you want to create these engagement opportunities. But remember, like as a brand, I like to separate the sales process, the marketing funnel from the buyer journey. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yes, but it's rarely done. Oh, I know. Right? So news alert, breaking news, you know, big asterisks and a big wah, 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 right? Here's the breaking news. <laughs> Customers do not wake up every morning and go, oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm going from stage two to stage three in the sales process. <laughs> right. Or, oh my gosh, I'm going from stage two to stage three in the ADA marketing funnel. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not what they do. So going back to that statement is... You are trying to create these multiple sort of, you know, honey traps, if you will, right, to get them to engage with you. But you don't always know how they're going to do it. You can try to control what they do, but you can't control what they do. So you have to say, I, I can't just create this kind of engagement strategy or marketing strategy and make this assumption. I'm going to make sure everybody follows that. It may be multiple ways. So that's why I said you want to make sure that you create this engagement sort of strategy that that is compelling. And then you have to start to watch. Well, wow, I really thought this one was going to be engaging and no one's no one's doing it. Yeah. And then you start to do more of what's working and, and less of what's not working. Is it right. also are you also saying uh, not to put words in your mouth, but are you also trying to help companies understand that they don't have the control that they yearn for and that they, they may think they do. Yes. Yes. Which is what I was just saying that, and I said it a few minutes ago where I said that, that the relationship between the seller and the buyer has forever changed. When I started first selling technology 25 years ago, I knew more than the person sitting across the table from me because there was no 
internet. There was no way to find out the specs and see customer reviews and what the pricing was and what people thought of it in 60 seconds. So I would walk in in full control of, I'm going to show you a demo. I'm going to share with you pricing. You had the information that they needed. That's right. And when it was time, I would share with you a reference. Now there's very little control a salesperson has in that journey the buyer takes. What they can do though, and what, what a marketer can do is be very prepared when the customer shows up and also make sure they're very focused on providing the customer information they cannot get on their own and value they cannot get on their own. And that's very different. And that's why what I said in that quote that you said, I, you know, can you unpack that a little bit? This is that shift. And there are many salespeople who still behave and many marketers who still behave in the push mentality of this is our process. This is what we want to say. And if they don't like it too bad, uh, and customers are saying, yeah, it's uh, too bad I'll for you somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. It's too bad for you. <laughs> um, so, you know, ultimately it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy on where you were saying on why growth is getting harder is, you know, and that Bain quote is many people feel like we've always done it this way. It's worked. And, and it's equally challenging by the way, for companies who are in a growth stall as it is for businesses that are growing, meaning because they're growing, they be, might become a little complacent. Yes. Yes. Right? And that's one of the great killers. Yes. Oh boy. Well, let's talk, uh, about selling more to your current customers, which for me, I'm, yes, I'm I love that one. Well, yes. you know, it seems like it's a more predictable, uh, perhaps safer, uh, path to faster revenue. Uh, I mean, compared to at least some of the other paths, but what is it that trips up so many companies from pursuing that path? I mean, what, why do so many companies place less emphasis on selling more to their existing customer base and instead, you know, always chasing the new, uh, oh, no, no, go get more customers. Go get more customers. Yeah. And uh, this was my, one of my favorite, I mean, you know, you can't have favorite children on out of this because there's 10 in the past. Yeah, but I've got the book I, the, open. It's listening. Yeah, so Yeah. So <laughs> the, uh, the reason that I liked that chapter so much is because it got to the heart of something I I talk about often, and that is this. One is that I believe there are there is a problem of disconnected teams, and I'm going to focus on three for a second: marketing, sales, and customer service, because they're customer facing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the reason they're disconnected in my mind is because the metrics are disconnected. So I'm going to go, and I'm going to give you very generalization: sales, how much did you sell for me today? Marketing, how many leads did you generate? Customer service, how many calls did you take, or how many first call resolution, or did you answer the phone in one minute? Whatever, right? Right. Those metrics pull those teams in very different directions. Mm -hmm. Because if you unpack the question you just asked about customer-based penetration, marketers' metrics tend to be how many new leads did you get? Mm -hmm. How many clicks did you get? How many forms got filled out? How much pipeline did you add at the top of the funnel from net new customers? How many new logos did you get sales? How many did you sell? Like it's all this kind of hunter mentality. Mm -hmm. And customer service tends to be viewed as a cost center still Mm -hmm. instead of a profit center, which is moving from being product centric to customer centric. And so if you all of a sudden start to say, hold on a second, it's less expensive for us to sell to the base. They're more willing to buy from us more frequency. They're more loyal. They're more willing to talk about us. They're willing to give us a pass 
if we do something wrong because they're already engaged with us. And so does it make sense to redirect some of the energy of trying to go out and get new and focus into the base? And if you're a very small company and you have 10 customers, that doesn't work. But if you have in mass of a number of customers, going back to one of the things I said a number of minutes ago of how many customers do you actually have, and you know that answer, then the question is, well, are we getting everything we could out of that out of that base of customers? And I think that's where it gets ignored because marketers are so focused on what are they driving net new. And I tend to pick on cell phones at this point where, you know, if you think about a cell phone commercial, regardless of brand, and it says, oh, you know, sign up or you can get, you know, five free phones, nine trillion gigs of data will come over to your house and rub your feet while you set it up. And that kind of thing. And so you get all excited and you call up and your cell phone provider goes, oh, no, no. Yeah, you've been a client for 10 years and pay us $300 a month and we don't actually care about you. We only want new customers. Yeah. Yeah, right? So, yeah, it's uh, it seems like if they could... Um focus more on, on focus everyone more on revenue, it would be more effective. Are there examples of companies that are unifying those three areas? And that's where I really see this sort of amplification of growth. When you start to, to a couple of things happen, you know, the term customer success group, uh, instead of calling people customer service is interesting to me, but it's only interesting to me if customer service is no longer a cost center and viewed as a profit center and you really change the behavior and you allow customer service to serve the customer versus being held so tightly to these metrics that are actually not customer friendly. And when marketers actually are held responsible for that sort of, you know, anything that's going on in the base. So while I often hear that chief marketing officers should own customer experience, I really am not a fan of that at all uh, because I think everybody needs to own it from yes. the receptionist to everybody owns it. And mm -hmm. one person owning sort of what the strategy is and maybe being responsible for the metric, but everyone having responsibility somehow in their bonus or their comp or their pay, whatever in net promoter or CSAT or churn is helpful and so if the marketer says our existing base is delivering us a, you know, hundred million, one million, five million, a billion, whatever, that they're held to the, okay, what's the upsell cross-sell of that? And are they actually focusing on enabling customer service the same way they're enabling or customer success, the same way they're enabling sales? Then I know that they're starting to really pivot into that customer centricity. Mm -hmm. And then the third is on the sales team being actually a little bit more focused on lifetime value uh, and separating teams on sales development reps. And then I, I don't like to use hunter and farmer anymore because I think that that keeps us in this old mindset versus thinking about it more holistically across lifetime value and profitability and net promoter scores and, and churn and things like that. But the companies that are doing those things, so to just flat out answer the question, the challenge for me is rarely do I see a brand doing all three. Mm. I will see them really making progress in one or in two, but not all three. And I know it right away when I'll meet with the executive team of businesses, you know, in my role, obviously here at Salesforce, and they'll start talking about it. And in the room is sales ops and IT. So none of the BU leaders are even sitting at the table or there's one or two, but never three. And so that moment, I know that they're not aligned on what's the purpose of quote unquote our CRM tool in a way that allows us to be smarter about engagement, 
using analytics to make different decisions, being better on customer experience and customer success, tying metrics together, single source of customer data and information. That's where you really start to see brands making a trans transformation. But that, what I just said, is not easy. So oh. I don't say that lightly, right? I, I say that as that is the holy grail and everyone is walking towards that. And if you're larger, you have the ability to spend money to get yourself there quick, more quickly. But the Achilles heel and everything I just said is people in process, not technology. <laughs> yes, those darn people. Hey, it's back to that internal thing you were talking about. Yes, yes. So uh, Tiffany, in our remaining time, I, I did want to ask you about one other big topic, which was sales optimization. And explain, this is one of the 10, sales optimization. Explain what that is and talk a bit about your background in this area. Yeah. So, you know, I call myself a recovering seller. Like I, I'm just a sales gal at heart. I, I began selling it sort of what I did very, very well when I was in my twenties and when I was in my thirties and I got pretty good at it and started running, you know, small sales teams to larger sales teams. And then I, my very last sort of quarter bearing quota carrying role was I ran a, a division of gateway computers, the Holstein pattern boxes. And, yes, uh, I, that was in the book I, too. That was great. Yeah. And uh, I, I would tell you that, um, you know, there's a very frightening stat, which I use in the book as well from CSO insights that, that it's a combination. One of them is from CSO. One of them is from Salesforce. One was, you know, 65, 66% of a salesperson's time is spent on non-selling activities. Mm-hmm. And the other side of the same coin is, and some 53, 54% of sellers will miss quota this year. So then you go, okay, 66% of their time is spent non-selling, 50 plus percent are going to miss quota, yet we have 7,500 MarTech products and you know, uh, you know, not as many on the CRM side, but there's no shortage of technology, right? <laughs> Client listening, email marketing. I mean, there is no shortage. Yeah. And if the rest of the company were to have those same kind of numbers... Uh, they wouldn't be tolerated. Right. So I say if you have 10 salespeople and 66% of their time is spent on non-selling, if I could, as a sales leader, give them back two to 5% of their time, five to 7% of their time, and you have, I'm just going to pick a 50% number of missing quota. Do I think it would then raise quota attainment? So people who got 76% of quota attainment got 80 or 80 got 84 or 87 got 91 or 95 got 98. If I can start to play with the time and productivity and I can see the direct correlation to their ability to have more time to sell, which would, if they're good, would obviously should deliver. I don't know that there's a bigger leverage point for the company than getting the salespeople to become a little, a little more successful, a little more successful. Now I want to be really clear here. I want you to focus on the middle of that capability, meaning leave your top performers alone. And and this is a Mike Bosworth uh, statistics who sort of invented solution selling. Mike did some work that actually found that in 100% of a sales team, 15 or 17% of sellers are considered sort of top performers or a performers. So put them aside for a second. Okay. Because getting one or 2% more out of someone who's performing at 105 or 106 is kind of negligible. If you focus on the middle, which tends to be 65%, according to his stats, that are kind of, you know, not hitting quota, um, you know, anywhere between sort of 70 and 100%, let's say, that's where you need to focus. And so it's those middle performers of getting them to just produce two to 5% more. It is meaningful. So going back to what do I do? Hire more salespeople, spend more marketing dollars, cut costs. 
those three levers? Or do I say, if you're a sales leader listening to this or a marketing leader listening to this, do you know those statistics? Do you know how much time they're actually spending on selling? Do you know what average quota attainment is? And if you just focused on that for two, three, four quarters on how can I drive down the amount of time they're spent on non-selling, and I get it. I work at a CRM company. You're going, yeah, well, that's part of the problem. We have to sit there and data enter all day. Well, you don't really as much anymore because AI and machine learning and a lot of that intelligence and automation should pick up some percentage of it. Hence why we keep developing the way we're developing because we're trying to drive that down as well. So now you don't have to type it. You can do it with voice or, you know, it's grabbing from multiple places and starting to get intelligent and filling in fields for you. So, you know, next best, best action is two weeks from now. You didn't have to go. I need to enter in two weeks to call Bob that it tells you in two weeks, call Bob, right? Right, right. And that's where salespeople who are afraid of AI and automation are going to have it, find it harder and harder to hit numbers. And they're going to get beat by even middle performers who use intelligence and automation better than they do. They're going to start to beat them. And not because they're better sellers, but because they're using technology better. And so that's why optimizing the sales team you currently have, unless, by the way, you have 10 salespeople and all 10 are hitting quota and 30% of their time is spent on non-selling activities, then I think you can skip that chapter. Okay. <laughs> well, what? but what are some of the big reasons why companies are not able to you know, put some planning and, and looking at the sales improvements compared to you know, like production or, or manufacturing or some of the other things or, or finance that they're able to to keep better track of is it because they don't have the data or is it, is it an, uh, an internal issue that they're, that they don't know how to solve the problem? What, what, what seems no, to be holding this, them back? Yeah, this is so multifaceted, but I'd say, you know, and I say this with, uh, you know, love on my sleeve, right? Because I call myself a recovering seller. So I'm throwing shade on myself, uh, okay. that I'd say one, um, you know, we keep a lot of it in our head and we don't want to share it for whatever reason. It's our customer. We don't want to share it. Someone's going to take it. You know, what's the value? It's just input. It's so they can manage every second of every minute of every day of every week of every month of every quarter of what I do. I don't see what I can get out of it. Part of it's that. Part of it is the fact that as a sales leader, going back to your question, I don't know, 20 minutes ago about, you know, publicly traded and the hamster wheel of chasing the in quarter versus looking out four to six quarters. I coined a term when I was at Gartner called the seller's dilemma, which is really this dilemma of, and it was a play on Clayton Christensen's innovator's (laughs) dilemma, obviously, that, you know, you say, how do I hit my numbers in this quarter? while at the same time, I'm looking out four to six quarters. And I won't have a job in four to six quarters if I can't hit my numbers this quarter. So I'm just going to focus on this quarter. And I'm not taking an hour a day to back up and say, wait a second, what are my stats? How do I carve 5% out of their non-selling time? What can I do? Because if it doesn't produce revenue right now, it's almost like it really takes a disciplined sales leader and a disciplined seller to be able to believe that the long-term view will actually be better for you in the short term, but you have to believe it. And you can't do it for three days and go, oh, that didn't work. Like you have to be committed. And, Mm. you know, disrupting yourself, which is a Whitney Johnson uh, statement, you know, disrupting yourself uh, is one of the hardest things to do. And, And if you're looking to disrupt your business and make these kinds of changes, the first thing you have to do is disrupt yourself. So, You have to say, I'm going to carve an hour out every day and I'm going to pick one of the people on my sales team and I'm going to look at what they're doing and I'm going to help them 
decrease that 66% number and I'm going to watch, am I getting them more productivity out of quota attainment? And what Bob needs might be different than what Sally needs might be different than what John needs or what, what Hector needs or Juan needs or whatever the case might be. Ultimately, you have to, as a leader and on the marketing side as well, going back to your selling into the base, don't just focus on net new leads. Like, what are you doing into the base? Are you paying equal amount of, t- of attention? And I'd almost argue, I want you spending more attention into your base than to net new. Yes. And so, you know, this is just all about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, that's just the <laughs> easiest way to say it. As simple as that. Well, there was something you mentioned earlier about how um, just because you have a selling system, it doesn't mean that's your, your customer's buying system. And I just wanted yes. to w- quote one more time from the book. Optimized sales isn't just about making sure your internal resources are optimized and enabled with the best tools and customer insights. You must never forget about your customers and the success they will gain from using your products and services. You can't get caught in the trap of internally focused processes and how you can constantly squeeze every last drop out of your salespeople. Instead, you must look from the outside in so you can watch customer expectations and their buying journey with how you organize, enable, train, and scale your sales force. So Tiffany, if readers took only one thing away from your book, what would you hope it would be? I'm going to go back to where we started this, which was I used the 10 growth paths as just purely the reference of making sure that everybody knew that what they were doing now is actually good. That ultimately, I wanted them to really understand that the high performers look at growth paths, one, in combination. It's never just one con- one growth path. Mm-hmm. Two, the context of their market, not to chase their competition, that yes. no one else has their customers, no one else has their employees, no one else has their products. And so if you try to replicate what your competitors are doing, you're not taking into account the fact that they have different customers and different employees and different value prop than you do. Even if you're selling donuts, you can say, well, a donut is a donut. Sure. But the people behind the counter are different. Mm -hmm. The location is different. The way you've designed your store is different. It is not the product itself could be the same. It's everything else around it. So the context is super important. But the third thing, which was really the aha moment for me when I made my way to the end of the book and I realized that it was all about the sequence or order in which you do things in your business around growth that has the greatest ability to have positive impact on how likely you're going to be for success. And That alone was what I hope they get. The 10 growth paths, once again, they should just be like, yep, I know, I recognize them. Yeah. Context, I get it. You know, like, yes, of course, you know, we're not only benchmarking our competition, we're looking what's going on from an industry perspective. Fantastic. But the sequence and order in which you do things, that's where people, I rarely hear say that, you know what, I know, Tiffany, we need to do this. But before we do this, I know we need to do that. Because if we don't, this is not going to be as successful. I mean, I could count on one hand when I hear that, right? So the example I use in the book is Netflix. And I say, if Netflix in the United States had launched with streaming before they launched with mail order, would they have been successful? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, because we didn't all have high speed at the house at the time. Right. We had VHS and DVD players. But when they left the US and went to other countries, you know, 10 years later, what did everyone have? High speed internet. So they started with streaming. 
And so Blockbuster had actually started streaming years before Netflix had ever shown up, but they were too early. That's the context problem. I'm going to use Gateway. We had Gateway stores before Apple stores. We had something not called a Genius Bar, but just like a Genius Bar. Mm -hmm. We were selling tablets and flat screen TVs and all-in-ones before anyone else was. The timing wasn't right. So, you know, ultimately, you just have to think about sort of the order in which you do things. And so going back to your statement on our sales process is different than the buyer journey and the decisions we make internally. If they don't have an impact on the customer, why are you doing them? Because <laughs> that's why we've always done it, Tiffany. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, what books have inspired your work and career? When I was preparing for Growth IQ, I actually reread lots of books that I had read, you know, over the course of my career. And I and I, I actually probably got through about 70 or 75 books. Wow. And, and the reason I did it was because I wanted to write something that hadn't been written. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one. Two, what did I like about their books? What did I not like about their books? You know, and, and going back to I wanted to write the book that I would want to read. And uh, so, you know, there's sort of the tried and trues. Uh, Love in Search of Excellence by Tom Peters. It's the very first business book I ever read mm. uh, back when I was 16 or 17 years old. And, and you know, he was kind enough to give me an endorsement on my book. And we're, we're now friends. And, and that was sort of a very full circle moment for me. Mm-hmm. Anything you can get your hands on from Seth Godin. He's one of my favorite people back when I was a Loquas Beta class client, I had Seth come in after he had published Purple Cow and he did a Purple Cow workshop for me um, in 2002 or three. And and that's when I met Seth. So anything from Seth, I will consume all the time. Here, here. Yeah. I love Whitney Johnson's work on on disruption and personal disruption and, and what that looks like. Lisa Bodell has done some amazing stuff on inclusion and diversity and not just from a gender perspective, but from a thinking style uh, I, I, there's just so many, but I, I would say that I'm inspired by anything that gets me to go, huh, I hadn't thought about that, right? Same here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's my favorite. Oh, terrific. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that you might be looking forward to reading? Yeah. I'm fortunate enough to have this, you know, stack of books that comes in on a regular basis. Did you just walk uh, over to your bookshelf? <laughs> Uh, I looked okay. and I looked, I was leaning to look to go, okay, what would I say? There are, let's see, what, what would be one that I just read that, well, I loved Quiet by Susan Cain. I thought that was a great book, although that's, that's a little dated as well. But um, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Yes. I wish I'd read it earlier in my career. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. I would say Multipliers by Liz is, is also a good one because, you know, as I moved up in management, there was sort of, I didn't know how to manage, you know, you individual contributors sort of moving into management can be dangerous because you don't know how to manage people and you can't manage them how you would want to be managed because not everybody's you. And so those are two books I wish I had read as I was moving up in my career. But most recently, I'd say in the last sort of three to four months, No Hard Feelings was, was a great book. Oh, terrific. Well, great. Well, we will include links to all the books that you've mentioned in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And we'll include a link to tiffanybova.com and your LinkedIn profile and Twitter and all those uh, things so that the listener can go and learn more about you. And I hope they'll reach out to you and thank you for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break 
your business. The author is Tiffany Bova. Tiffany, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. And that closes the book on episode 241 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Hrefs, to start getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website. Start your seven-day trial for just $7 by visiting hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Dr. Jim Carr to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Science of Customer Connections. Manage your message to grow your business. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. Thank you so much, Doug. It was really a pleasure. Great conversation. Thanks for enjoying the book and all the kind things you said. Really, it means a lot to me.